What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. What is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? We would love to hear your answer to that question. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. Grab one of these open phone lines early in the program, 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205-271-2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is ctc at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price, Charles Beery producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And the host every stinking day is Dr. David Anders. How are you? Well, I am, I am now officially a year older. Had my birthday yesterday. Oh, well, happy birthday. Thank you. You know, and, I have uh, an October birthday also. That's fantastic. Today is good. my sister-in-law's birthday. Okay, then. So it's it's an Oktoberfest. That's what it is. So I have an email here that I am picking simply for the fact that it contains the, world dilet- the word deleterious. Adam writes in, Dr. Anders, can you discuss some deleterious theological effects of, hold, of holding a modalistic interpretation of God and how the hypostatic union fits into the theology of those who ascribe to modalism. Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So first of all, what is modalism? So we can uh, help our listeners understand the question. Modalism was an ancient Christian heresy, but although it's ancient, you still find versions of it floating around today that denied the doctrine of the Trinity, denied that God was one God, one essence, and three distinct persons, and taught instead the unicity of God, that God is one, but that the names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are like modes, roles, that the one God takes. Uh, And so you will sometimes hear people try to give analogies to describe the nature of the Trinity, and they will say, well, you know, the Trinity is like water, ice, and steam. Well, no, actually, the Trinity is nothing like water, ice, and steam. But the modalists would like that. They would say, yeah, this is exactly what God is like. God is water, ice, and steam, of course, are just different modes for one element. And that's what they thought of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here are the deleterious effects of holding that on your own personal spirituality. The Father and the Son have no relationship. They have no personal relationship. And so the Son of God has no filial relationship to God the Father. And, of course, Scripture presents Christ as emphatically having a filial relationship to God the Father and being in prayer to God the Father and having come to do the Father's will and not his own, etc., etc. And our incorporation into Christ is an incorporation into the filial relationship of the Son with the Father. 
all that is obliterated on modalism, right? So that's why. Now, the question, how do modalists handle the hypostatic union? They don't, because the doctrine of Chalcedon, which defined the doctrine of the hypostatic union, is later in Christian history than the heresy of modalism. And, uh, and so the modalists weren't present at Chalcedon. They didn't enter into the discussions at all. Um, how modern modalists handle it, and you've, really the only place you find modern modalists is in what's called oneness Pentecostalism. And uh, oneness Pentecostalism has not been known for throwing up a, a selection of uh, highly speculative academic theologians. That's, that's not what it's famed for. And so I don't know that any of them I don't know of anyone in that tradition that has uh, uh, discoursed intelligently on the nature of the divine and the human in the person of Jesus. I'm sure there's someone who's talking about At least not it. in human languages. Yeah, right. <laughs> not in, yes, exactly. 833-288. Jack said that because they're Pentecostals who speak in tongues, yeah. right? Yeah. 833-288-EWTN is our uh, toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Sandra writes in, what is the difference between sanctifying grace and justification? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So sanctifying grace is the gift of God's self to us that heals the soul and transforms the soul from the state of sin to the state of justice or righteousness. Justification is a description of the process of what happens to the sanctified soul. What happens to the soul with grace? Uh, he becomes, he or she becomes right with God. And that right-wising with God we call justification. But justification is not the only effect of sanctifying grace, right? So sanctifying grace is an ongoing stable condition in the Christian life. It's an orientation to loving God and neighbor that comes with an infusion of all of the virtues and gifts of the Spirit. So there is an intimacy and union with God that's the fruit of that, but sanctifying grace, where justification just describes the process of moving from the state of sin to the state of righteousness. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We're uh, a couple minutes left here. I've, I've got one more email that I want to get to simply because it comes to us from Beaverton, Oregon. And I just think any town named Beaverton is a place I would want to live. Yeah, absolutely. Beaverton, Michigan, a great town. Um, Rob writes in, Dr. Anders, a Protestant in an Internet forum, made the claim that Catholics during the Reformation did not know the gospel because the scriptures were always proclaimed in Latin during Mass. Is there any truth to this? There's absolutely no truth to that whatsoever at all, right? Um, so... When I lecture on the Reformation, and this was what I did my graduate study in, so I get occasion to do that from time to time, I always point out that the Reformation doesn't begin with Luther. The Reformation begins with Pope Hildebrand in the 11th century. The idea that Christianity should look back to antiquity as a model for Christian life and should reform itself uh, against that model of antiquity, that's a Catholic idea. It's not a Protestant idea. It predates the, Reforma the Protestant Reformation by, you know, 500 years. And, uh, and it was picked up, of course, by the mendicants like St. Francis and St. Dominic, whose own personal Reformation was deeply evangelical in the sense of wanting to conform their lives to the gospel. 833-288-EWTN. It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders.
You know, in just a minute, we're going to speak with Jeff in Butte, Montana, Elizabeth in Albany, New York, Christy in Jackson, Michigan, and we've got plenty of time and plenty of phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're looking to get an early start on that Christmas shopping for the special lady in your life, have I got an item for you at EWTN's Religious Catalog? Uh, it is uh, some sterling silver earrings. These unique solid sterling silver earrings are Ave Maria symboled in the intertwined A and M. It's sometimes known as the Auspice Maria, which means under the protection of Mary. The earrings have a post with a butterfly back and are about 3 eighths inches wide and 5 eighths inches long. They are made in the USA and they will arrive boxed and easy for gift wrapping. Find out more about it at EWTN's Religious Catalog, that's EWTNRC.com, where they're offering free standard shipping of online orders of $75 or more. That is standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. Dominus Vobiscum. Et cum spiritu So, they read the gospel in Latin back during the Reformation, and so... Catholics had no clue what the gospel said. Yeah, that's just that's that's poppycock. And and before the break, I was explaining that look, the Reformation doesn't begin with Luther and Calvin. It really begins with the Catholic Church 500 years earlier, when the idea of primitivism, the idea of let's reform the church by looking to an ancient model, it's really proposed by Pope Hildebrand, who himself learned it from the the, the monks of Cluny. So like that that's where the Reformation really begins. The idea that we have to really infuse a new spirit into Christendom. That's why uh, Stephen Osment, who's a Protestant historian, wrote a book on the history of the Reformation called The Age of Reform, 1250 to 1550, you know, <laughs> where beginning the Reformation in the 13th century. And he picked 1250, of course, because the mendicant orders of the Dominicans and the Franciscans were explicitly formed to be reforming or reformation orders. And they weren't the only ones. The Augustinian hermits that Luther came out of was another reforming order. There were a lot of reforming orders whose goal was explicitly to reinfuse the spirit of evangelical life into the Catholic Church of the 13th century. And, uh, and they were very explicitly inspired by the example of the Gospels, uh, the life of Christ in particular. Now, the way they understood the Gospels and the Gospel is, of course, very different from the way Luther understood it. Um, Luther, for instance, said in his preface to the New Testament that Christians should not view Jesus as a lawgiver. Well, Jesus is emphatically a lawgiver emphatically a law. The Gospel of Matthew makes it plain that he's a second Moses. Luther said Christians ought not to view Christ as a second Moses. It's emphatic that that's exactly how Matthew wants us to see Jesus, a second Moses and a second founder who establishes a new 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles and all the rest of it. And so Catholics of the centuries have known this about the Gospels. They've known this about the life of Christ. And so St. Dominic, for example, who carried the Gospel of Matthew in his back pocket everywhere he went, said, this is my rule of life. I'm going to conform myself to the person of Christ as I find him in the gospel, especially in the gospel of St. Matthew. St. Francis, of course, probably no man in history has ever so intentionally tried to conform his life to the example of Christ in the gospels. Now, it's worth pointing out that Francis didn't speak Latin, or at least not very well at all, uh, uh, but he knew the content of the gospels, and he, he knew it because the gospel was proclaimed in his church, and even if it was read in Latin, it was interpreted for him and translated for him by the priests. So, and, and he had no problem with that. And it's not like the priests had an agenda to, to misstate what was found in the text. They, they wanted to be faithful to it, and they gave us people like St. Francis. And this, this evangelical impulse continues for 300 years until Luther. And, uh, and, and, and so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's patently absurd to suggest that the Catholics 
whether or not they were literate, whether or not they could read Latin, had no knowledge of the content of the Gospels. Of course they knew them. They intentionally tried to pattern their lives after them. John Bossie, historian of late medieval Christianity, says that the most characteristic expression of medieval Catholic piety in these centuries was the confraternity. What's a confraternity? Um, Protestants know them as small groups, right? They were the Catholic version of small groups, and there were literally tens of thousands of them all over, all over Europe, dotted over Europe. And they were committed to prayer, devotional practice, uh, care for the members, and to, and to an evangelical way of life. Uh, many people are familiar with the famous devotional manual, The Imitation of Christ, by Thomas Akempis, of another reforming order, the, the Brethren of the Common Life, uh, that, that uh, came out of the Low Countries, that was so prominent and popular and produced reformers like Erasmus of Rotterdam, who was one of the people who gave, well, the first person to give us a critical edition of the New Testament in Greek. I mean, like, so this is just, they didn't believe what Luther thought about the text. That's clear. But did they know the text? Did they try to conform their lives to it? That's, that's all the Catholic faith is about. To the phones we go. First up today is Jeff in Butte, Montana, listening on Queen of Victory Radio. Jeff, thank you so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Uh, good afternoon. Hey. From Luke. Yeah, from Luke's Song of Mary, my question is, while being without sin, how could Mary remain silent amongst the great sin of her age? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Well, I had a grandmother who had two grandmothers. One lived by the rule that she would say whatever she thought to anyone that she thought it about. And she was not very pleasant to be around, to be honest with you. I had another grandmother who lived by the rule, if you have nothing nice to say, say nothing at all. She was quiet a lot. (laughs) And my mother would always tell me, this is her mother-in-law, my father's mother, if your grandmother was really mad, you could tell because she didn't say anything, you know. And uh, I have no people like that. I'm sure you have too, right? People who are determined to say evil of no one um, and, to, and to teach by the example of their, their quiet life. And honestly, they're the best teachers. They're the best teachers by far. In, in my life, perhaps in yours as well, I've been around a lot of blowhards that, that pontificate and bloviate about everything they think is wrong with the world. Those people, people, people typically don't influence you except by way of a negative example. You're like, I don't want to be like that guy. Um, but many of us also know people of extraordinary virtue whose, whose life of virtue is itself such a contradiction to the way of life of the people around them that it shines out like a light in a dark place. When I was in college, I was not a Catholic, and I went to Tulane University in the glorious city of New Orleans, which is, known, which is uh, known for a lot of things, but sobriety is not one of them, right? And I'm on college freshman, you know, we... we um, took full advantage of the liberal enforcement of the drinking or, you know, quasi, as it were, drinking laws in the city of New Orleans. And a lot of uh, mayhem ensued, right, in the dormitories at Tulane University. But I remember I had this one fellow on my dorm. His name was Dave. Dave, if you're out there living in Dallas, you know who you are. Thanks to you. And uh, Dave was the one Catholic, practicing Catholic, that I knew on the floor. And um, I never saw Dave criticize anybody. But I also never saw Dave stinking drunk, right? Everybody else was falling all over themselves to get into all kinds of nonsense. And there was Dave just living a kind of quiet, sober, friendly, affable, convivial, but decent life. But he had that crucifix on, you know, and it spoke volumes to me. And it, as I've looked back on my time in college, I, I really was grateful for his—I knew he was Catholic. I was so grateful for his example of sort of quiet, manly piety— 
that wasn't showy, it wasn't in your face, it wasn't aggressive, uh, but it was a visible contradiction to the mayhem that I saw ensuing all around me. God bless you, Jeff. We appreciate the call today. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next stop is Albany, New York. Elizabeth is watching us on YouTube today. Elizabeth, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hi. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, so I am calling in regards to Isaiah 3, verse 12. I'm reading the uh, RS version, which states, my people, children are their oppressors, and women will over them. All my people, your leaders, mislead you and confuse the course of your path. So this particular verse, uh, within the context of Isaiah 3, I have heard, interpreted, mainly from Reformed Protestants, that this is um, proof text for um, why women should not be in places of leadership in society, particular, particularly um, civil leadership, irrespective of her um, position. So she could be pro-life, she could be a really great leader, but if we see women rise to positions of leadership in society, it's actually a sign of God's divine judgment. Um, I've been looking for the Catholic... I guess, interpretation of this verse. I know that there isn't a Catholic interpretation for every verse, but I'm curious to know, Dr. Enders, how um, how does that verse apply to how we should view uh, women in leadership? What is the Catholic view of this? How does, how does like, the reform position also coincide with Deborah um, being a place of, she was obviously influential in her day, and so how does that um, conform to that fact in the Bible as well. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. I have a lot to say about this. One of them, uh, unfortunately, while you were talking, I had time to pull up uh, St. Thomas Aquinas's commentary on Isaiah 3. A lot of times I, I can't get that done by the time the question is done, but fortunately I was able to pull it up. And I'm glancing at it right now as we're speaking. Thomas interprets this very differently from your Reformed people. Uh, Thomas, Thomas seems to think that what's going on here is that these spineless, weak-willed, sensual men are allowing themselves to be led, um, uh, like the character in the Proverbs, into adultery, into sensuous relationships. So he, he, he really doesn't engage the political sphere at all. This is really about um, people who lack the virtue of temperance that are allowing themselves to be drawn in by, say, the Jezebels of the world, right? It's not a, not a blanket condemnation of women in authority or women in leadership, but of a particular kind of uh, a feminine allure uh, the one that the, that the Proverbs warns against. You know, about the first eight chapters of Proverbs are about don't be led astray by the adulteress. Um, that's, that's what St. Thomas uh, seems to be suggesting. Now, the Catholic position, not on this verse specifically, but on the whole question of women in leadership, uh, is that uh, women absolutely should lead. And, and we, you know, in our, in our own sort of metaphysical hierarchy, it is a woman who stands at the at the top of the hierarchy of creatures, of creatures, of created beings. She is the head of the organizational chart. She's the head of the, <laughs> right. She is the queen of angels and the queen of the church uh, and, and absolutely the exemplar of Christian piety, right? That's a woman. And throughout Catholic history, women have played an incredibly important leadership role. Um, you know, in the canon of the Mass, which is the, the, the most sacred prayer in the entire Latin rite of the Church, 
we commemorate the virgin martyrs that I like to call the world's first feminists because what they were martyred for was telling men, you don't get to tell me what I do with my body. Because see, the Romans had an ideology that women were, were baby factories and that their only use was to make new Roman patrons and that you had to get them to work to that very early in life because the mortality rate was high enough that you know women had to start bearing children basically as soon as they went through puberty and they would be dead of it by the time they were 30 and they had to have at least five children just to maintain the level of population. So a woman who said, I'm not going to do that, was viewed as very, uh, you know, kind of anti-authoritarian, anti-culture, anti-life. Worthy of martyrdom. Right, and worthy of martyrdom, <laughs> exactly. But the, the Catholic Church's position was these women said, no, I, I'm going to take the gift of my virginity, and I'm going to give it to Christ, because I'm looking for a greater kingdom and a greater family. And for that, they, they died the death of torture. And the Catholic Church says, yeah, we're going to venerate these women in the most sacred prayer that the Church has, which is the canon of the Mass. Uh, and I look through Catholic history, and I see woman after woman who's, who's stood up to tyrannical par- authority and power, sometimes within the Church. My favorite example is St. Catherine of Siena, who, who went to the Pope and said, uh, Pope, get back to where you once belonged. Get out of Avignon and go back to Rome. And he listened to her, which is amazing. Amazing, right? Um, uh, she, would, she would walk out into the middle of a battlefield between warring factions in Italy, and she would say, stop in the name of Jesus Christ and sue for peace. And they would listen to her because of the overpowering force of her charismatic personality. She could do that. She could move armies. I, to me, I think that Catherine is probably the best living, well, deceased now, sanctified example of a prophetess within the, the post-canonical Catholic tradition. Speaking of prophetesses, while we were getting ready for this call, I, I, I poked around online a little bit, poked around in the, in the scriptures, and I was thinking about the example of uh, the prophetess Hulda, right? The prophetess Hulda from the Old Testament, Second Chronicles chapter 34, um, when the king says, Go inquire of the Lord for me. Go inquire of the Lord for me, because we need to know what to do. Who do they go to? They go to the prophetess Hulda, female, a woman, right? And uh, many other examples of prophetesses in Scripture as well, who obviously spoke the word of God with authority and with boldness. Um, so this, uh, I, I think that this is, uh, I think this is absurd. I think this is cherry picking and proof texting to to justify uh, the worst forms of reformed Protestant patriarchy and hubris. And for what it's worth, for what it's worth, I came out of that tradition. I I understand the sexism that is at the root of it. And I am conscious at firsthand of uh, tremendous abuses that have been perpetrated in the name of male headship over women in that particular domestic and ecclesiastical context. Um, uh, a famous Reformed theologian who was extremely influential in North America. Um, uh, uh, my father was a fan of this theologian, uh, and he wrote uh, interesting and compelling books of apologetics. Uh, after he died, his son left the Reformed tradition, became Orthodox, published a lot of memoirs about what it was like to grow up in that home. And the thing that struck me most forcefully was um, his accounts of uh, the spousal abuse that his father perpetrated against his mother. Until one day, this young man was big enough to stand up to his dad and say, you ever touch my father, my mother again and I'm going to kill you. Right. Um, and that's far more rampant than you would think. So the Catholic position on the dignity of women is that women, of course, is co-equal with men in dignity and John Paul II wrote an encyclical about it called On the Dignity of Women, and I recommend everybody go read it. 
And when it comes to women in leadership, if it weren't for women in leadership, I wouldn't have a job, right? Because EWTN, of course, was led for many years by its foundress, Mother Angelica. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's call to communion with Dr. David Anders. Still a couple of open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Anyway, there you have it. (laughs) I was going to read something, and I'm not quite sure I'm supposed to read that, so we'll put that on hold for now. Instead, we're going to go to Christy, a first-time caller in Jackson, Michigan, who is going to be far more interesting than anything I possibly could have read. She's listening on Good Shepherd Radio. Christy, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hello. I don't know about all that. (laughs) Um, I'm calling because we have a family member who is, uh, this coming year, is going to legally enter into a same-sex union, um, which, of course, we we won't and can't support. Um, In the past, when there's been any sort of discussion with other people, um, he turns it into whatever he wants to, to what he hears, and then it's kind of blathered through the family that, you know, he's not liked and he's not supported and that sort of thing. So obviously we cannot help that, um, but I was hoping for some suggestions on a way to very lovingly say that we support him and we love him, but not what he's doing and, and we can't take the family. Um, I don't want it to sound apologetic at all because I'm not apologetic about it, but I do want it to sound as loving as possible. And again, I know his ears are going to hear what they want to hear. Um, and it might, it might not mean anything to him, but I still want to do my very best with how that message is delivered to him. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate the question and I'm sorry for your dilemma. That's terribly uncomfortable. How about this? How about I love you and coming to this ceremony would violate my conscience. And I I can't violate my conscience. And if you want me to say more, I'll say more. And if you don't, I'll, I'll stop with that. Um, uh, uh, you know, I mean, you can't go for all kinds of reasons. Um, one of them, you mentioned taking your family, and of course that would be a scandal to certain members of your family if you went right and uh, and the presumption would be and a reasonable presumption would be that you were formally cooperating that you were willing the end of this uh, I don't mean the end like the termination I mean like the end as the goal of this relationship that you were conceding the point you can't do that um, you know there are there are some other things that you might do I mean if there is a reception uh, you might consider going to the reception as a member of the extended family to express your goodwill for the individuals involved but your absence from the actual ritual would be pretty clear that you were loving people or desirous of loving people without affirming uh, the nature of the union as such. You could maybe choose that option. Uh, But at the end of the day, it's a violation of your conscience. And you don't have to, like you said, you don't have to justify yourself to him. But unless he wants to tell you, I insist that you think like I do, now, I, he, he would be highly offended if you said that to him. If you said, I insist that you think as I do, he'd be highly offended. Well, does he insist that you think as he does? If he will grant you the dignity of your own conscience, he ought to, whether he will or not is another matter, he ought to respect the dignity of your conscience. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Big congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, Divine Mercy Radio, serving the Research Triangle there in North Carolina, is celebrating their 8th anniversary as an EWTN affiliate. Congratulations to Keith and Cecilia Flannery, and uh, they are getting ready to retire, and they have turned the reins over to Melissa Savage. So everybody keep Melissa Savage in your prayers. She, I'm sure, will do a phenomenal job, and the Flannerys will be right there with her to uh, to guide her along. And uh, we just a big shout-out to the whole team there at Catholic 540 AM from your friends here at EWTN. Uh, next up for us is Anastasia. She is in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts watching on television today. Anastasia, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Hi, I was wondering if you could biblically support purgatory. Yes, I can. Would you like me to? Yes, please. I'll do it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but I will add this caveat before I begin. If there were not one single stitch of Scripture in support of the doctrine of purgatory, that itself would not be a reason to jettison the doctrine of purgatory. Unless you believe against the teaching of Scripture that all doctrines have to be supported by Scripture. Scripture itself teaches the opposite. It does not teach that Scripture, that doctrine has to be supported by Scripture. Um, but uh, but uh, So even if it were just taught by sacred tradition, it would be enough to rationally hold the doctrine. But as it turns out, I can defend it from the Bible, and I will do so. So what is purgatory? And how do you, what's the logic of the doctrine? The logic of the doctrine is twofold. That we, are, that we have an obligation to do penance for sins even forgiven. And that we need to be purified of our attachments to evil and to sin before we enter the presence of God. Let me expound upon those. The second one is quite easy. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. The psalmist writes, who could ascend the Lord's mountain or stand on his holy hill? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. St. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, um, Purify yourself of everything that contaminates flesh or spirit out of reverence for God. So the imperative of obtaining purity as a condition of the vision of God is clearly taught in Scripture, Old and New Testament, Gospels and the Epistles. One of the things that purgatory does is affect this purification if it's not adequately accomplished in this life. Now, sometimes my Protestant friends who don't believe in purgatory will say, well, I don't believe in purgatory because it's not in the Bible, so they think. Um, and I'll say, well, do you think that, uh, and they, they typically believe that, you know, people are totally depraved and remain actively sinful until they die. So I'll say, well, you, you know, did you, when you die, are you still a sinner? Well, yeah, I'm a sinner when I die. When you get to glory, are you a sinner? Oh, no, I'm, I'm totally holy when I get to glory. There's no sin in heaven. Okay, so what happened between physical death and glory? If you just admitted that you died in sin, but you're admitted to heaven by faith alone, where you will be perfectly sanctified, what's the process in between? What, what, what actually has to happen in the soul? What's the mechanism for doing that? Well, I don't know, they say. Okay, well, we both agree on the end result. Catholics just specify the mechanism, right? Um, now, apart from purification, there's another function of purgatory, and that's reparation, that's satisfaction. It's penance. Scripture teaches that this is part of this is part of repentance. Uh, two places really clearly: Second Samuel twelve and Second Samuel twenty-four. Both places where David commits a grievous fault. He's confronted by a prophet. 
he repents of his sin, he is forgiven, and God imposes a penance upon him. In one instance, he loses a child. In another, uh, uh, I'm trying, I've, got my, I've got my sequence of penances mixed up. I can't think of which one's which, but go look them up. God imposes a penance upon David and Israel, um, a consequence for his sin, even though David has repented and been forgiven. And that accords with natural justice. And I've used this illustration uh, and on the air before, I got Jack's in here right next to me. If I backed out of the parking lot at EWTN and I ran into Jack's car, and it was his favorite car, and he just got the paint finished, and I came running in, I said, Jack, I'm super sorry. I just bumped into your car. Will you forgive me? I feel fairly confident that Jack, the Christian gentleman, would, would issue forgiveness. Like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't affect our friendship. Our relationship would not be ruined because of that, because I would repent and he would forgive. Uh, but it's still in the order of justice that I give him the name of my insurance adjuster and that I do what I can to make reparation for the damage. Uh, if my son throws a baseball in the house and breaks the window and he says, I'm sorry, Daddy, and I say, it's fine, I forgive you, I'm still going to hand him the dustpan and the broom. And to do otherwise would actually maybe not even be fully loving if I, if I didn't use that opportunity to let him do what he can to repair the damage. That's the logic of penance, and we find it in the Bible even with respect to our relationship with God. Because see, relationship, union with God means the union of my will with him. And if I'm loving what God loves, if I want to have that interior union with God, I'm, I'm going to want to repair the damage that I've done, even if I can't do it completely, even if it's a token. But that, that inclination to, to, to do right by someone is part of what reconciliation means. So it's an essential part of the act of forgiveness. Now, uh, is there any evidence that these purifications and these uh, reparations can take place after death? Yeah, there is. So those would be the, the scriptural passages that specifically speak of prayers for the dead. Um, St. Paul writes to Timothy, uh, asking that God have mercy on, on Onesiphorus, who presumably has deceased. And in 2 Maccabees chapter 12, we read that the people of Israel, the people of Judah, rather, were um, offering prayers on behalf of the dead who had died in morally questionable uh, circumstances. So the, the way you construct a doctrine of purgatory out of all that information is similar to the way you get to a doctrine of the Trinity. Like, you don't have the word the Trinity in the scriptures, but you have a doctrine of God's unicity. There's one God. Y you, have a, you have a description of the three persons of the Godhead. And then you... Then you coordinate those, okay, how do you get three persons and one God? Well, then you, you articulate a doctrine of the Trinity based on the available evidence in sacred scripture and tradition. Same sort of thing with purgatory. We see the elements that go into the logic of purgatory. They don't, you don't find the word purgatory, but those different elements. And then when you add to that the witness of sacred tradition, which is emphatic and very clear, that prayers for the dead are, have always been offered for souls at Mass and and, uh, and, and the penance can be done for them, and, and indulgence is obtained for them. All that is embedded in Catholic tradition, especially in St. Cyprian of Carthage in the mid-3rd century, the writings of St. Augustine of Hippo, and, of course, finally in the, in the Council of Trent uh, that, uh, that, that finalizes and dogmatizes the, the teaching. From the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, we head now to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Joe is in Warrington listening on Holy Spirit Radio. Joe, you're on with Dr. Anders. Good afternoon, Dr. Anders. Uh, Hi. It's a pleasure to you. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so uh, much. I'm confused uh, in uh, some scripture readings where it, it, and some it says Christ is risen, 
and someone says Christ was raised. Uh, particularly, I remember just recently a, a, a letter from Paul, I think it may have been to Timothy, which he talked about Christ being raised. I and mean, I'm not a biblical scholar, and I may not have that quotation correct, but I do remember, I did come out of me that Paul said he was raised. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So there, there's quite a few passages of Scripture that speak of God actively raising Christ from the dead. So the book of Acts, Peter's sermon, is that God has given proof of these things to all men by raising Christ from the dead. Uh, that's characteristic language. Um, in the Synoptic Gospels, the agency is not really described. What you find is an empty tomb and resurrection appearances. But there's not really a description of who, who's the agent of the resurrection. In John's Gospel, chapter 10, you find uh, Jesus saying, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord, and I have power to take it up again. There it seems that Christ is the agent of his own resurrection. So we have passages in the epistles that say God raises Christ from the dead. You have St. John's Gospel that Christ says, I, I take, lay my life down and take it up again. And... Uh, I, I've never actually thought the, this question you're asking. I mean, one way to to coordinate those, I suppose, would be to just affirm the divinity of Christ. Right? It is God ultimately that is responsible, uh, the one God who acts in concert, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, to raise the physical body of Jesus from the dead. Now, keep in mind that the divinity, as such, didn't cease to be conscious. Right? When the human soul of Christ separated from uh, his human body. Um, now, we would say God died in the sense that the God-man died, but the divinity didn't cease to be. And so, you know, God as an agent who is upholding and sustaining the universe and providentially guiding all things, including the effects of our redemption, um, continues to be an, the agent, the ultimate agent, the ultimate where the buck stops in all things uh, human and divine. Um, and so it is the divinity that is responsible for the raising of the humanity. Uh, Matthew is watching us on YouTube in the UK, and he says, It is the feast of St. John Henry Newman here in England and Wales. On that theme, what is a good way to celebrate Christian ecumenism and evangelize without falling into indifferentism? Um, yeah, I, I sort of try to do that every day, right? That's kind of what this show's about. Um, I, uh, uh, you know, in terms of celebrating Christian ecumenism, I mean, how, how about the study of the Gospels? I mean, the person of Jesus Christ is the basis for the unity of Christians, right? And, and we, can, we can agree to celebrate the person of Christ, the teaching example of Christ, and the, and the, and the, and the scriptures. That's something that we all have in common. Um, you know, sometimes we can't agree on what they mean, but when we do agree, we can sometimes engage in coordinated action, particularly on social issues. Um, uh, we can all we can feed the poor in Christ's name together. All kinds of things we can do in concert as Christians without actually agreeing on all points of Christian doctrine. Uh, we head next to uh, Chicago. Therese is a first-time caller outside Chicago, listening on WSFI Radio. Therese, you're on with Dr. David Andrews. Hi, Dr. Andrews. Hi. Uh, happy birthday. Happy Thank you. Birthday. Thank you so much. Um, you're such a blessing to all of us who listen regularly. Um, I was with my brother, my uh, little older brother, yesterday, and we had a family gathering, so we didn't talk too long privately, but he told me uh, he's gone to a Lutheran church for confession, and I said, well, were you absolved in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? 
And then he said yes, and I said, what was you, do you have penance? No, they don't believe in penance. So I wanted to respond, but I said, you know, let's talk again sometime, you know. So I was just trying to listen a lot. And um, I'm a little nervous. So, you know, I just wanted to give some things. I know, you know, where it is in the Bible uh, that Jesus gives the authority, you know, but I want to, you know, do something or say something that's going to, you know, make them think. I know he's reading meditations. I don't know if they're Christian or Catholic, but anyway, he was a Catholic, and I don't know if he left the church, but he, you know. Yep, I got you. So um, many Lutherans today do not know that there is a rite of confession in the Lutheran tradition. And uh, if you've ever listened to EWTN's Noah Lett uh, talk about his conversion from Lutheranism to Catholicism, one of the stories that he tells is that he was, in fact, a Lutheran pastor at one time, and he was reading Lutheran literature, and he was reading Luther. And uh, he read in there that, that the Church ought to have a, the practice of confession. Luther himself was an avid user of the sacrament of confession when he was a Catholic, and, uh, and Noah said, well, that, that sounds like a really good business. You know, let's, let's do that. And he went to his Lutheran bishop, and they're like, yeah, we don't really do that anymore. And he's like, but it's here in the texts, you know. And, uh, and he was many other things involved in Noah's conversion of course, as well, of course, but he was actually driven by some of the Catholic elements embedded in the Lutheran tradition to seek out the active uh, life of, uh, of this liturgical ritual that he that he'd found in Luther but didn't see lived out in his Lutheran community and it, it one of many things that led him back to the Catholic faith um, Luther was uh, was loath to get rid of the confessional he wanted to get rid of pretty much all the Catholic sacraments except for what he called the supper and and baptism but he wavered for a while on confession because he himself had derived a great deal of good particularly from his confessor Johann von Staupitz who pointed him continually back to the grace of Christ. Luther had a very scrupulous conscience and could find a way to find fault with himself for anything. And uh, Stalpitz got quite frustrated with him and, and really just kept pushing him back, pointing him back to the grace of Christ, and Luther found that to be of inestimable value. And uh, and so he, he didn't want to get rid of the confession. But in the end, he, he, he really did relegate it to a much lesser position in Lutheranism, which is why a lot of modern Lutherans don't even practice the rite. Uh, Luther's criticism of the Catholic confessional was was uh, multifold. Uh, on the one hand, he rejected the Catholic understanding of the sacrament of orders, right? Because in the Catholic Church, it is the priest who has the faculty to absolve sins. It's not something a layman can do. Um, and Luther objected to the doctrine of apostolic succession and the and the and the, uh, and the sacrament of orders in the Catholic Church. So that's a key difference. Um, Luther also rejected, as your as your brother pointed out, the, the whole doctrine of penance, um, and uh, and he had a very different conception of um, of uh, the nature of contrition. So for Luther, it was really sufficient to um, you know to just confess your sins and ask Christ to forgive you. The Catholic Church, of course, really really requires an interior in contrition for sin, a desire not to sin again, and a kind of willful determination not to do it. And so there's a, there's a difference in terms of the interior disposition of the penitent. Um, uh, but the biggest difference of all, of course, is the, the actual power of absolution. Uh, for the Catholic, the priest actually has a delegated authority. He doesn't just represent to the penitent the universal promise of Christ to forgive sins. He, in fact, can, in his own person, unilaterally grant that forgiveness. And that's not Luther's conception. Luther doesn't think that the... That the that the minister of the Lutheran Church 
possesses in his own person in virtue of his ordination an authority directly from Christ to absolve sins. It's more like the power to declare in general sense that sins are forgiven to the penitent soul, to the contrite soul. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We head next to the home of the gorillas, David, Pittsburgh, Kansas. All right. Uh, Jeff is listening on the EWTN app. Jeff, you're on with Dr. Anders. Yes, thank you. Um, I really I love your show, really appreciate it. Um, I am still a Protestant, making my way to the Catholic Church. The other day, my, my oldest son and I have had some good discussions and two weeks ago, he asked me, do Catholics really believe that Mary was sinless? And I said, yes. And that was it. I couldn't explain it, couldn't defend it. And I even asked myself, do I believe that? I think I do, but I don't know why. Yeah. And I just Absolutely. like to hear your thoughts. Love to talk about that. Thank you so much. So uh, many Protestants cannot fathom the notion that Christian life could be lived without sin, because the Calvinist doctrine of total depravity has been so pounded into their head, and Luther's doctrine that concupiscence is sin. And this, this is really what I think leads to a lot of neurotic behavior among Puritan, puritanical types. What is concupiscence? Concupiscence is the immoderate appetites that almost all of us have. You know, I mean, I used to use the illustration online that I'm a big fan of pecan pie. I don't eat it anymore because of my health. But boy, if I, you know, I, you hand me one slice of pecan pie, I'll finish off two pies in a row. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm helpless in front of the pecan pie. And uh, my, my intrinsic desire to eat more pecan pie than is good for me is why I moderate by not eating any at all. Um, from a Lutheran point of view... The desire to eat too much pecan pie is itself a sin, regardless of whether or not you eat the pie. You know, the desire to unite immorally with some woman that you're not married to is intrinsically a sin, whether or not you unite in such a way. That's not the Catholic point of view. The Catholic point of view is that the immoderate desire for some inappropriate object is not itself a sin. The sin is bringing the act to fruition. The desire is what we call concupiscence. Resisting concupiscence is actually, is actually meritorious. You, you would look at somebody that resisted a very strong desire to do evil and did not give in, and you would admire them. Well, God does too. Now, we don't actually think the Blessed Virgin Mary had concupiscence. She was free of that as well. But I'm just laying out the, the, the nature of sin as understood by Catholics. Once you understand that sin is in the is in the fruition of the act uh, it's in the, the the determination of the will to follow through rather than the desire as such suddenly sinlessness seems m more attainable even for a garden variety catholic like you and me and the catholic doctrine is that all of the saints those who have been canonized succeeded in obtaining in attaining sin sinlessness before they died that they were perfectly united to God in their will before they died. Now, for most of us, it comes as the result of a lengthy process of asceticism, purification, a spiritual illumination through a deep life of prayer, penance, uh, contemplative prayer, uh, works of charity, and, and it, might, it might take a person a lifetime to come to that kind of interior union with God, but they can get there in the end. The Blessed Virgin Mary was granted the singular privilege of complete sanctification 
from the moment of her conception. Now, can God do that? Could God simply infuse a, a sufficient quality of sanctifying grace into the soul from the first moment of conception that the soul could be preserved from any and all original and actual sin? Of course he could. Of course he could. And that's what he did in Mary's case. And very quickly, we'll head to Dave, a first-time caller in Warminster, Pennsylvania, listening on Holy Spirit Radio. Dave, just about a minute left with Dr. Andrews. What's your question today? Okay, real quick, Dr. Andrews, uh, thanks for having me on. Um, you were speaking uh, earlier about the virgin martyrs being the original feminist. So in, in this day of, say, abortion, how would I defend against saying, you know, somebody would say, well, it's my body, you can't tell me what to do. What, is there a defense for that? Yeah, it's not your body. It's not your body. That that's the defense. I mean, the 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 abortion apologists that claim this is my body, they they ignore the, the not only the metaphysical and philosophical and theological, but the scientific and 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 biological evidence that the fetus is a different human being. And so, if you think that life is intrinsically valuable and has its own dignity and worth, your right to dispose of your body stops at the life of another person, and this is another person. And very quickly, Tom in Belleville, Illinois, wants to know if you can explain the difference between Catholic and Baptist idea of the wrath of God. Yeah, God has no emotions in the Catholic faith. Language of emotionality in Scripture is a condescension to human language and categories, uh, but God transcends all that. And so we, we, we read these things in a very different light. When you read these passages about God changing his mind or waxing wroth, we read them as a... Uh, uh, be like sort of anthropomorphic condescensions to, to, to human personality and culture, but ultimately the nature of God is impassable. That means God doesn't change at all. He has no passing emotional states. He doesn't go from anger to happiness to quiescence to excitement um, because he's, he's uh, he, being God, having the, sort of the ultimate, ultimate metaphysical fixed point in the universe, he doesn't change. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer Charles Beery, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price. Thanking you for tuning in. We're back at it tomorrow with a Tuesday edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. God bless.